in the past decade, uh, we've seen tremendous growth in the, in the collaborative research taking place on the cloud. And even these quotes that are listed here are a few years old at this point. And now what's becoming sort of the newish normal is to have, you know, almost all your kind of collaborative research take place on the cloud as opposed to just using it to meet in the middle or anything. And really the factors that are behind this are, the, you know, both technical and sort of scientific. In the technical sense, we now have the ability to do these things where we didn't before. And I'm sure most of you or all of you can remember, you know, the days past when we were primarily sending hard drives through the mail and, you know, even just spreadsheets as we, you know, tried to trade scientific data. But, um, you know, Sorry, I'm feeding back. I don't want to blow anyone's ears here. But in addition to that, uh, we now have, um, you know, other factors taking place, which is that the large amount of scientific problems that are being addressed today are so large that they tend to exceed the scale or ability of any kind of one institution can muster. And so you, what you find is a lot more institutions taking advantage of the fact that they can collaborate uh, much more easily and then, you know, actually doing so while on the cloud. And, you know, obviously we hope that AWS is that home for all your collaborative scientific research needs. And in the years, it's evolved from, you know, a simple on-site kind of model, like I said, trading hard drives, keeping, you know, all kinds of high-powered workstations under your desk and things like that. This sort of shadow IT that was built around any type of scientific research effort or even any type of collaboration that was taking place. And it's grown to actually become, uh, you know, what we started to do was meet in the middle, right? So, you know, that means using S3 to trade data instead of sending hard drives and using common compute platforms instead of, and, you know, uh, made available that way instead of just trying to, you know, work individually on workstations that everybody had set up on their own. And so now what we're seeing is this, you know, growth into what we call DevOps, but really it is just sort of a loose name for, you know, the coordinated development and deployment of common applications and common environments and common platforms so that these collaborative efforts are actually taking place on a common, you know, in, within a common framework. So today uh, what we have is a review of a couple of those architectures for doing collaborative research um, brought to you by Ryan and Stephen from HLI and Lance from Celgene, and they're going to kind of go over the, what, the, what they've set up and the general you know, architecture that they've deployed. So. Okay. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Well, we got to go to, oop, we lost my original slide. So my name is Ryan Ulasic. And this is Stephen Terrell, and we're from a company called Human Longevity. And the title of our talk is Building a Platform for Collaborative Scientific Research on AWS. So some of the topics we're going to cover today about Human Longevity, our company, um, some of the challenges that we face, solutions that we came up with, um, the journey to get there, and then some closing thoughts. So this is a chart from the CDC, and it describes life expectancy over three different groups or three different generations. And the first shift you see from the blue to the yellow line 
is an improvement in life expectancy that was due to the eradication of infectious disease in the early 20th century through antibiotics and vaccines. And the second shift you see, the yellow to the red line, is an improvement in life expectancy due to better health care, better practice of medicine, improvements in sanitation, and improvements in the economy. And so the big challenge of the 21st century healthcare system is to continue this progress um, through managing the progression of chronic disease across the population. So HLI's mission is to change the practice of medicine, making it more preventative, um, predictive, personalized, and genomics-based with the goal of empowering individuals to manage the progression of chronic disease and have healthier, fuller lives. And so in order to do that, we need to move beyond medicine as clinical science to medicine as data science. If you look at our current form of medicine, our descriptive form of medicine, we don't really collect that much data on you as a, as a patient. So maybe laboratory results or medical reports, about three and a half gigabytes of data in total. So our, our first step with our health nucleus clinics was to start doing deep numerical analysis on all organ systems of people going through the clinic and capturing a lot of different data. So we do things like sequence your whole genome sequencing, identifying your microbiome, your metabolome, gait analysis, um, doing MRIs, and we collect this body of data, about 150 gigabytes in total, and create a digital U or a digital health profile. Now, to understand that profile, it has to be understood against a background. It has to be put in context against a population of everyone, ideally. And so to do that, you need population studies. And one such study was done at Human Longevity on 10,000 people. Um, it was analysis of 10,000 people's blood virome, the vi viruses in their blood. And the idea was to get a background, what's, what's normal, that, so we can compare these digital you, these individuals, against that background. So that was done, that study was done on about a petabyte of data, about a trillion similarity searches. It was uh, run over the course of three weeks on 10 M4 4XLs. And the idea is that we need to be doing studies like this, but not on 10,000 people, on tens of millions of people, ultimately. Exabytes of data, thousands of compute instances. And not just one study, but thousands or tens of thousands of studies to create a knowledge base to actually compare these individuals and really quantify people's biology and, and realize this vision of being able to empower people to manage the progression of chronic disease throughout their life. And so scale matters, scale of the um, storage of the data, scale of compute, scaling the platform, being able to plug in new analytical tools, accommodate new data sets, push the science forward, and take advantage of opportunities as, as they present themselves to bring products to market. So we'll talk about that platform piece today. So in realizing this vision, one of the first key challenges we ran into is we scaled as a company, we grew as a company really quickly. Went from zero to 300 people in two years. And during that time, we sequenced about 35,000 whole genomes, processed them, generated about 35 petabytes of data. And one of the things we observed is that teams are building out different pipelines on different platforms, different ways, with different technologies, different approaches. 
and that made it really difficult for people to collaborate across teams, to share tools across pipelines. And the bioinformaticians were getting really bogged down in infrastructure and not able to focus on the science. And we accumulated a lot of redundant infrastructure that consumed time and resources. And some of these pipelines are complex. They could have complex workflow orchestration logic, complex or diverse resource requirements across steps within the pipeline. And we also accumulated significant storage and compute costs, sometimes due to using on-demand instances or underutilizing resources. And finally, we found it really challenging to get these genomics pipelines into production, often because the, the infrastructure they were using was very different. So the solution was to create a common platform for genomics pipelines using AWS managed services. And the idea is to take this platform and have a much simpler pipeline definition that we could use across the organization and to optimize for cost at a platform level so everyone can benefit from that optimization and to move to continuous delivery model so that we're always a button push away from production. So if somebody changes the, the platform or if there's changes to pipelines or changes to tools, you're a button push away. And with automated quality gates, they get more rigorous the closer you get to production because quality matters. The data has to be right. People are making health decisions based on this analysis. And we also need to ease and accelerate this transition from R&D to production by having a common language, common way of defining pipelines. So the journey to get there was iterative for us, and it had five key steps along the way. The first was a new customer that needed an exome report, and they needed things like ancestry, trait predictions, pharmacogenomic predictions. And at the time, we were generating these reports manually, and we needed to automate that process. And we needed it up and running in two weeks because we needed to start integrating other systems around this one. So our solution to this was simple. We used SQS and we would put sample messages into this queue and then we had very simple Python applications that would pull that queue, pull down a sample and then run a sequence of bioinformatics tools on that EC2 instance, produce JSON results, put those in S3 and there was downstream systems that would take that data and create a PDF report. And what we did is we took the bioinformatics tools, we baked them into the AMIs themselves. That's how we deployed these tools into this environment. And then we use ops work to manage the instances. So here's an example of what the code looks like. So on the right, we have a pipeline definition that's in JSON. And what we have here is just one step, a one-step pipeline. What I've highlighted here is what we would do to describe a step. So you describe the name of the step. Maybe it's inputs, it's command, outputs, any file dependencies that you would depend on, maybe a reference genome file. And then the code was really simple. It's, you pull a, a sample down from SQS, that queue. And when you have that sample, you're going to iterate over each step, pull external file dependencies from S3, pull maybe VCF files, file from uh, sample files from S3, and then run that bioinformatics tool locally. And remember, they're baked into the AMI. So pretty simple idea. One of the key benefits here is that it worked really well as a starting point. We were able to get up and running in two weeks and get the project up and running. Um, and auto-scaling in OpsWorks is really easy. You could scale on CPU load 
or you could scale on a CloudWatch alarm. In our case, we scaled on queue depth. So every time the queue depth for the samples went up, we would add more nodes. And every time the queue depth decreased, we would remove the nodes. But there's some drawbacks. So there's pain around manually building and updating the AMI. Every time a bioinformatics tool changed, we had to update the tools and then update the AMI and deploy it. We realized we were building our own workflow engine, which wasn't really what we wanted to be in the business of doing. Um, we couldn't optimize for workload resources at each step because we're taking a sample and running all the analysis, all four or five tools on one instance. So we couldn't right size each step for the appropriate instance. And we weren't taking advantage of spot. We were using on demand at the time. So the next challenge that we faced was adapting the tool change. There were a lot of requests coming in to add traits, to add pharmacogenomics um, information to these reports. And it was triggering a lot of tool changes, which was triggering rebuilding these AMIs. So we wanted a more flexible way of accommodating the tools. So what we did is we moved, migrated to Docker. And what that allowed us to do is have bioinformaticians that could create a tool, Dockerize it, run it on their machine, make sure it worked, spin up an EC2 instance, run it there, make sure it worked. And when they're happy with it, they could push it to ECR, Amazon's um, Docker image repository, and then we can incorporate that into the pipeline. So we made some simple changes to the architecture. We got rid of the baked AMIs, and we moved to a standard Linux AMI with Docker installed. And we just ran Docker images on those machines, and we pulled those Docker images from ECR. So we essentially swapped out the AMI for Docker, the custom AMI. And then for the pipeline definition, it's pretty much the same. What we have now, though, is a, a path to the image in ECR, so we know where to pull that Docker image from, and some arguments, potentially. And then we also have this additional step when we're pulling down a step, but we're running that step, we have another uh, thing to do here, which is to pull the image from ECR, then pull external files and sample files, and then run the step. We would run Docker run. So before we were running the tool directly, now we're running Docker run. So the, the benefit to this is now we can easily accommodate tool changes, but we realized, boy, we don't want to be in the business of supporting Docker ourselves. That was kind of painful. So for example, we'd run into conflicts between Docker versions and uh, AMI versions. So we didn't want to be supporting Docker ourselves. And there was pain around managing the images, the Docker images themselves. So the next challenge we face is we kind of became a victim of our own success. The system was working really well for a given pipeline, a report pipeline. Now we wanted to be able to run lots of different report pipelines on the same platform. So we had flexibility in accommodating the tools with Docker, and now we wanted to be able to accommodate flexible pipelines, pipeline definitions. And so to do that, we dropped our custom version, our custom, custom workflow engine, and we moved to SWF and Flow. So SWF is a service in AWS that essentially does workflow management. It gives you, it gave us things like versioning of steps and workflows, uh, retry logic, a council to kind of track things, APIs. It's really a tracker for uh, complex workflows in the cloud. And the AWS Flow framework is a, a convenience framework that's written in Ruby that makes it really easy to write distributed applications that interact or use SWF. 
And it does a lot of the heavy lifting for you, so you could just focus on your piece, your code. So the architecture evolved a bit here. But now we've dropped SQS in the queue, and now we have a topic, so we moved the publish-subscribe model. And we have an event that comes off this topic, and a Lambda that subscribes that event, takes that event in, runs SWF, submits a workflow execution, and now we've swapped out the Python applications for these Ruby flow applications. And within this model, SWF and flow, you have deciders and activity workers. So decider processes will pull a workflow down, decide what the next step should be, submit that back to SWF, and make it available to activity workers to pull them those jobs down and run the activities, report the results back to SWF. That's how the model works. And then there's a really great chef cookbook that makes it really easy to create these decider and activity worker processes in ops work stacks. So we use that as well. So pipeline definition similar, but now we've added this async flag so you could run some steps in parallel. And then we've migrated to Ruby instead of Python because this framework's Ruby framework. And the two things that you need to be aware of with SWF and Flow is this send to sync and exec step. Send to sync is going to submit a job to SWF to run, and it's going to return a future that you can wait on. So this is your mechanism to run things in parallel. And exec step is your mechanism to run things in sequence. So create an array of futures, an empty array, iterate over each step. The ones that can run in parallel, you submit them, collect all the futures, wait for them all. And when they're all done, you run each step in sequence. And this is where you could have steps that depend on a previous step. You can make sure that they run in the right order. Put outputs in S3, for example. And then this code is the decider code that gets deployed within a decider process. And this other code here is the activity code that gets deployed in an activity process. And those recipes make that all easy. So you could stand up these decider and activity workers within a cluster. So big benefit here. Much easier to accommodate new pipelines now and run steps in parallel. And we have things like the ability to handle failures and retries and versioning. But the workflow approach or pipeline definition approach wasn't really flexible enough to accommodate the more complex pipelines that we had. So we needed to move beyond our simple JSON definition to something more sophisticated. And for that, I'll hand this off to Stephen. Thank you, Ryan. So at this point in our journey is when I came on board to this project to help us push our next iteration of this platform forward. And what we had found is that we have become even greater victims of our own success. People were coming to us and asking if we could onboard any type of pipeline at HLI to this platform, whether that be a pipeline to do secondary analysis. It's on. It's on. Can you hear me back there? Now we hear you. All right. So we wanted to be able to onboard any type of pipeline to this platform. And whether that be a secondary analysis pipeline or maybe a pipeline that generates data that's fed into a data lake, in addition to the report generation pipelines we were already running. And then once we had everything onboarded to this common platform, we wanted to optimize for cost at a platform level and use something like Spotfleet to heavily reduce the compute costs. So what we need is a managed service for running Dockerized pipelines. Now, AWS doesn't really offer such a service, but they do have all the component pieces you see here to put one together yourself. So that's the approach we took, and we call it Docker Pipeline. 
Now, there's kind of three key concepts with Docker Pipeline that you need to be aware of. And the first is registering a task with the system. Before, in a pipeline, which we saw previously, if you had a bioinformatics tool, you needed to kind of define it within your pipeline itself. But here, we've broken that out. So now, all you need to do is register that bioinformatics tool as a task with Docker Pipeline. And you tell Docker Pipeline how to run that tool and the resources that are required to run it. Next, you need to register your pipeline with the system. And a pipeline is composed of two important parts. The first is your steps file, which references tasks that are already registered on Docker Pipeline. And the other is a little bit of orchestration code, again written in Ruby, that tells the platform how to orchestrate the individual steps within your pipeline. And then, once your pipeline is registered with the system, you can simply call DPL pipeline run. And then the, the platform will pull uh, that pipeline out and run it for you. So here's kind of what that looks like if I'm a new researcher at HLI. Let's say I've written a bioinformatics tool that's generating some ancestry data. And here we can see that I've installed the DPL or the, or the Docker pipeline command line tool that we call DPL. And I'm registering my ancestry task with the system. Again, we have a bit of JSON that kind of describes that task. This looks pretty familiar. We're telling it uh, what image to run and then the arguments to that image. But we have this new resource requirements block that defines the resources that are needed to run this specific task. So here I've said I need 40 cores. I need EVS size small. Uh, I can specify what EVS type I like. Maybe a snapshot as well that contains things like reference genomes or other static files and then a memory multiplier that I can use to basically select a high memory instance for my task. Next, I'm going to register a new pipeline that I've built on Docker Pipeline. And the first piece I need to include is my steps file. So here, instead of defining the step within the pipeline itself, I'm including a task that I've registered on Docker Pipeline, and this is my ancestry task. However, I'm also including a traits task. Now, this is already registered with the system. It could have been created and registered by me, someone else on my team, or a different team entirely. I don't really need to know how to use this tool or what it's, what's needed to run it, because Docker Pipeline knows how to run this for me. So it's very simple for me to include it in my pipeline. I also need to include a little bit of Ruby code that instructs or that tells Docker Pipeline how to orchestrate the various steps within my pipeline. So here, as similar to before, uh, the person registering the pipeline now uh, is actually writing this code. So similar to before, this is how we run something synchronously. And then we also have the ability to run things asynchronously. And if I choose, I can write some conditional logic in here so that I can do things like splits, merges, uh, multiple choice, all of those complex workflow patterns that are needed in more complex pipelines. Then once I've got that registered with the system, I can call DPL run, and I get back a run ID and a workflow ID that I can use to track my pipeline as it's being run by Docker Pipeline. Now here in the SWF console, we see up top that I've got a workflow execution running. And then down below, there's an activity running in my pipeline. 
So this will correlate to my ancestry task if I'm running synchronously. So this one will run first. And then if we look in the ECS console, we can see that I have my ancestry container running on an ECS cluster. So here's kind of how all this works. Uh, a nice little architecture slide, and it's a little complex. So let's step through each piece of it. Uh, the first is my Docker push, so I'm registering my Docker image with a repository, in this case ECR. Then I'll register a task that references that Docker image and tells uh, Docker Pipeline how to run it and what's needed to run it. Then I'll register my pipeline with the system that uses tasks that are already registered. And then finally I call DPL run. So that's what it looks like from the end user's perspective, someone who's building a pipeline at HLI. Now behind the scenes, after the DPL run call is made, a Lambda function will start a workflow with SWF. From here, a decider process running in our OpsWorks stack will pull that workflow down from SWF and inside that will be the work or the pipeline that we're trying to run and the parameters that need to be sent into that pipeline. We'll then pull the pipeline definition from our registry, which in this case is Dynamo. And then we'll execute that bit of Ruby code that orchestrates the pipeline. So in our case, that will run basically the ancestry task first. And that will make an activity available in SWF that is then pulled down by an activity worker also running in our OpsWorks stack. Once that activity worker receives the activity, it will call a Lambda function saying, I would like to start this task on Docker Pipeline, and here are the parameters to that task. It's then given back a task identifier that it can use to pull for the status of that task. Then the Lambda function will retrieve the task from our task registry and determine the appropriate ECS cluster to submit that specific task to. Now, the idea here is that we have an ECS cluster set up for every kind of combination of resource requirements. So kind of on the fly, we're <laughs> looking at that task and saying, okay, I know it needs this specific set of resources and it will create an ECS cluster that can handle that type of work. So any task that needs that same set of resource requirements will get routed to that same ECS cluster. Now, if that ECS cluster doesn't exist, we will create it at that time, and we'll configure a spot fleet that can handle that type of work. So we'll make sure we're adding the right types of instances with the right EDS size and other resource requirements. And then we'll attach it to that specific ECS cluster. Then, in front of that, we'll put an SQS queue that the task actually gets submitted to. Then, we have Lambda functions monitoring um, queues that are in front of our ECS clusters, and they'll pull down a message and attempt to submit that specific work to ECS, to actually run the Docker image on ECS. If ECS comes back and says we don't have enough resources, the message simply goes back on the queue to be retried at a later time. We're monitoring all of these queues, and when the messages pile up and cross our threshold, we know that we need to add more capacity to our spot fleets, or to our ECS clusters. So we'll look up the spot fleet that is powering that ECS cluster, 
and then we will add capacity to it. Once those nodes come online, they join the ECS cluster, and the next time the work is submitted to it, it will start our Docker image. Once we're on the node itself and the Docker image is running, they'll be reading and writing files to S3. Now, eventually, all of the activities in a workflow will complete. Those all get tracked in SWF, and when they all finish, we know that our workflow is done and we've run our pipeline successfully. So that's how a pipeline gets run on Docker Pipeline. So now we can accommodate uh, complex workflow patterns, and we can define those pretty simply. We can also share tools across pipelines. Since we've taken the bioinformatics tool definition out of the pipeline definition and registered them separately on the system, they can be easily included in other pipelines because people know that when a task is registered on Docker Pipeline, that it will just run on the system. We're now also optimizing our instance types for each step in a workflow because we're being very specific about the resource requirements that are needed for that task. So we're right-sizing our instances. We're also no longer supporting Docker ourselves, which is a big win. Uh, ECS makes it very easy to just start Docker images and run them and then Amazon handles all the configuration that's needed on the Docker side for us. And we're also getting some pretty massive cost savings because we're using Spot to run all of our jobs. So the next step we wanted to do was uh, go faster with continuous delivery. We needed to be able to deploy into production very quickly. So that means automation. We need to understand our deployment process and automate it. We need to have really great integration testing at each step of our deployment, and we need to have push button to prod. So at HLI, we're using code pipeline to orchestrate our continuous delivery pipeline, which will start a deployment in our dev environment, which uses AWS code deploy to stand up all our infrastructure. And then we run a quick smoke test to make sure that looks good. We then do our deployment in our integration environment, and run a much broader suite of integration tests that's going to be exercising all parts of the system to make sure they're working as intended. From here, we push to our stage environment where we're doing um, blue-green deployments, so we'll have an inactive stack that we deploy to, integration tests there, make sure everything looks good, and then we'll switch that inactive stack to the active one. And then finally, we'll send a message to SNS, which sends an email out with a link that someone can click to push the latest changes to production. Now this is what our integration environment actually looks like from the uh, code pipeline console. And here we can see we're running our code deploy, our AWS code deploy deployment. And we also wrote a Lambda or a Slack integration that notifies our Slack channel when we've started a deployment. Here we're deploying our OpsWorks application in our OpsWorks stack. And then here, we're running all of our integration tests in our integration environment. And then also notifying our Slack channel when the deployment is complete. So now, it's very easy for us to go from hearing about a bug to having a fix deployed into production within minutes. So we're deploying to production multiple times a day now. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Ryan for a quick summary. So there's a couple key benefits we got from all of this. 
dramatic simplification in pipeline complexity. So one example, we, we went from about 2,000 lines of code for one pipeline to about 20 lines of code in a config file. Um, significant reduction in time to generate those reports. So some of these things were taking like a couple of people three weeks, then we were able to get that down to about five hours. Significant cost savings with spot. So these are the compute costs for a particular report, but in some cases we went from $32 a six for a given report. Um, daily deployments to, of the platform changes to production. So it was taking us sometimes weeks or months to get something into production. We were able to get that down to daily and a dramatically easier handoff between bioinformatics and engineering because now we've gone from code to configuration, right? So it's just passing the configuration along. And finally, some next steps, things we're thinking about in the future. One, we've done a lot of work to simplify pipeline definition, but now the big challenge is defining the tools and building the bioinformatics tools. So we think there's lots of opportunities with some of the managed services in AWS and frameworks to make that a lot easier for bioinformatics scientists. And then, find, and then the last thing is there's a desire to be able to run Spark clusters for a given step. So instead of running on one instance with maybe 40 cores, you can run a cluster of 60 machines. Um, so those are some of the things that we're thinking about next. And with that, I will hand it over. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I'm Lance Smith from Celgene. Um, real quick, this is what we'll be talking about today, some of the, a little bit about the company, some of the trends that we're seeing in the collaboration models, plural, that we have, uh, and some of the configuration and uh, uh, steps that we have uh, learned along the way here. Uh, so real quick, if you don't know who we are, we're biotech, uh, all the way from uh, discovery, all the way to sales and distribution. Uh, and that last bullet point, we have 60 sites globally, and that has a big implication I'll talk about, about the networking uh, that we have at our sites here. Yes. Right, so uh, some of the trends that we're seeing, um, as um, Patrick talked about earlier, a lot of collaborations and partnerships. Celgene, we're, we're a, you know, this is, this is what we do. We sign up a lot of collaborators, work with a lot of universities, and probably with some of you in the audience here, we work with your organizations. R&D, of course, very, very quick. Um, they will sign deals and not tell IT, so you know, it's our job to make it happen. Um, and the last bullet point here, cloud-native solutions. You know, we're starting to see the software market start to mature. We're no longer seeing forklifted applications, but we're seeing applications written directly for Amazon. Um, either you run them as a software as a service from the vendor, or you run them in your account, uh, maybe someplace in between. The one thing that you can't do, though, is run them uh, on-premise. Uh, real quick on our collaboration, uh, this coming weekend we're going to have an announcement. I can't quite put the press release here, but this coming Saturday uh, we've been in dark stealth mode for the last year. Uh, multiple myeloma genome project, we've been working with a number of universities. We're going to be opening this up to a uh, greater world, so if your organization does myeloma research, uh, please contact us and then uh, maybe we can work together on this. <clears throat> All right, so uh, talked a little bit about our collaborations. We have multiple collaborations. We have many different types of science that we do. So at any given day, we have hundreds of biologists and chemists around the world doing all sorts of science, and we need to help them out. They want to work with a university. It's our job to help them enable that. Um, so you know, each of the scientists, they have a different type of science, different type of software, different types of output, and we can't have a single platform that can support them all. Uh, so we have a couple of dozen collaborations, but we can pretty much group them into two separate categories. One is the bench chemist. You know, we are, these are true end users that they just want a simple way of interface. Click on here, upload your data, and then your data is there. Um, single sign-on ties into our corporate network, 
And then we have the other type of collaboration, the HPC users. These are, you know, we have our PhD scientists, but half of them are also computer scientists. They're not, you know, hardcore super science, uh, computer science developers. They know how to code and they want to write their own algorithms. They want shell access, they want API access. And, and because it's HPC, we're talking you know, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of nodes working on petabyte scale data. Uh, from an IT point of view though, both of those two categories, we, we treat them the same. Uh, we have multiple vendors coming in that sell us software. We have multiple research groups working together. They all want API access. How do we, how do we you know, keep them safe from each other and um, between projects? So what we do is we have a multiple account model where each collaboration gets a separate account, we park them in an account. And no matter what they do, they can affect another project. Um, they can delete their own data, but they can't affect anyone else's. It has multiple benefits, and I'll go into a little bit of that later. Uh, but from our point of view, the management is the same. Uh, here's one of our architecture diagrams for our, one of our mass spec systems. Uh, the users come in, they hit one of web servers, all the scaling group behind the ELD. Uh, they then upload their files of S3. They have single sign-on that hits our AD servers and our DMZ. Uh, processing is also done in auto scaling groups with spot. Uh, that saves us a lot of money. All primary data is kept in S3. Metadata is then kept in RDS. And SQS is used for uh, uh, queuing of tasks between, uh, between jobs. Uh, HPC, this is uh, a little bit simplified um, you know, compared to the last slide there. Um, the scientists themselves write the pipeline, they write the algorithms, they write the coordination, they work with the data directly. Uh, so we can't give them a simple web interface. They shell in with a bastion host. We have a couple of different bastion hosts with a role attached to it. The scientists themselves generally don't get Amazon keys. They work on the bastion host, which then has the IAM role in which they can operate. Uh, so they, they can work on the algorithms there. Um, up data, they upload directly to S3 from wherever they may be coming from. And then we have a couple different compute clusters. Uh, those, the, the compute nodes that can handle SQS, those pipelines, have better failover, they're cheaper, and we use spot. Uh, some of our other pipelines, we unfortunately have to use on-demand, but we are working with the scientists to uh, move that into uh, spot as well. Uh, connectivity, so um, how do we connect into these environments? Uh, so when a project first comes to IT, collaboration or not, we, you know, we, we are here to try to help them. We're not trying to be the department of no. How do we help them out? Um, but one of the few things that not, is not negotiable for us is that when a project comes along, they have a choice. An IGW or a VGW, we can't have both. Uh, what that means is that uh, with an IGW, that VPC can talk to the outside world directly, or with the VGW can talk to the on-premise systems. Uh, we, we are a pharmaceutical company. We have a lot of data that bad people want, and we can't let them have it. Um, however, collaboration accounts, you know, they have to have the IGW in order for the collaborators to come in, so we chop off the VGW. Um, but we can still use the company Direct Connects, uh, which to communicate and upload data. Uh, with a public interface on the Direct Connect, we can ac access S3. We can also access all the public IPs uh, with SSH and whatnot. Uh, and then, oh, do my laser pointer here, but you, you won't be able to see it. Um, <clears throat> So there's a number of options. If, you know, if your organization is looking to uh, connect into Amazon, you have a number of options. Uh, the easiest one to do is just you know, the internet access. SSH in, boom, you're in. Some security issues there, so you could go with a, v, a VPN connection there. But with our multi, multiple account model, um, managing multiple VPN connections is very, very painful. So we did that for a few months, uh, that's not for us. 
we then jumped directly into our uh, 10 gig direct connect. So we have two of those, two more 10 gigs coming, uh, one on each side of the country, firing up on uh, EU as well. Um, there's a big decision between one gig or sub one gig and one gig in higher direct connects. And it's not just the speed. Almost, the speed is almost for us uh, a separate concern. Uh, if you're less than one gig on your direct connect, you only get one interface. For 10, one and 10 gig, you get up to, well, you start with 50 and you can go up to about 100 or so. And the reason why that's important is that when you, each VPC needs a virtual interface. And if you want to low, upload lots of data, you also want to use a public interface to upload to S3. So immediately right off the bat, you need two. For a multi-account model like us, you need 20, 30, 50 separate interfaces. And if you're at a sub one gig direct connect, you only get one. So we, we recommend um, one gig or higher. Uh, but before you go off and buy your direct connect, there's some additional choices that you have to make or decisions that you have to make. Uh, the big one for us is region, region selection. If you're on the East Coast, it's easy, US East one. If you're on the West Coast, half of my operations are on the East West Coast, you have two choices, very hard decision. US West one versus US West two. Um, we have a lot of on-premise databases and we're gonna be working in a hybrid mode for the next five, 10 years. So latency is a huge concern to us. Um, that's why we went with US West 1. However, every week, scientists, users, hey Lance, you know, EFS is great, we'd like to have it. It's not available in US West 1. Um, so when Amazon releases new features, they always come out in Seattle, Virginia, and the Ireland data centers. Um, you know, we're all working on firing up Frankfurt as well, um, fully knowing that the new features come out in Ireland and not in Frankfurt. But latency is a big deal for us and uh, that's what we have to do. <clears throat> Um, so multi-account model, so like I said, we have a number of projects, not just you know, collaboration accounts. So we have a dozen or so collaborations, another 20 or so on-premise or company-connected accounts. Uh, and this is how we manage them. Um, our total team, two FTEs, contacting company, part-time FTE from Europe. Actually, we have one additional headcount opening, so if anyone's looking for a job, just contact me. <laughs> um, but you know, we have very, very small staff, and this is not only we do. We also maintain our on-premise clusters. Uh, we have six or seven research sites. We have to maintain all that with the skeleton crew. Um, so we have this tool for, uh, from Turbot. That's their website there. Uh, it helps us manage all these environments. So 30-plus accounts managed by basically two people. Uh, so we're talking hundreds, thousands of nodes, automated security. I'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, but it really helps us manage all these environments, security policies, and automated auditing uh, between all the accounts. <clears throat> so, uh, one of the things that uh, the tool allows us to do is to harden the Amazon environment in which these collaborations take place. So you know, we want to give these developers freedom in which to develop their software, freedom for the vendors to upload and up maintain their software. Um, but what we can't do is have these developers uh, compromise our on-premise solutions. Um, so what we do with Turbot is we isolate off uh, all the network controls. So anything to do with the VPC, security groups, uh, peering, virtual interfaces, all that is restricted uh, away from the project team and, and you know, we, uh, the IT group maintains that. Uh, we work with the individual project teams to work on their security groups. So they will tell us, oh, we need these security groups, these, IP, these ports and IPs, not a problem. They, the project teams then can take those security groups and assign them to the, vir to the virtual machines that they create. So I don't need to get involved. They create them. They can uh, pick what the, uh, 
what security groups they want. Uh, object controls, which is also very, very important since S3 is not part of a VPC that is potentially accessible from outside. So what we do is with the Turbot pro program, we allow our end users to create their own buckets. Don't call me out, I don't really care. Projects can create their own buckets. The tool automatically picks that up, <coughs> boom, slaps on a, a policy. So we, we predefine a policy that's applied to all buckets, uh, no matter who, who made them. Uh, credentials, now we really don't like to give out credentials. We sure as heck don't want them baked into any sort of virtual machine. Um, so with, with the Turbot program, uh, we can uh, automate that. We, we don't uh, give out S3 credentials, uh, S3 a little bit, um, and then auditing. Um, if there is a potential security violation, the tool will find it and either fix it automatically or tell me, tell my team, and then we'll come along and fix it. So collaborations in general, uh, oh, of course we use EC2 and uh, ECS. S3 is uh, the document repository for everything. EFS in the regions that we do use, um, that do have it anyways, we really want it in US West 1. Of course, VPC and Direct Connect. Um, some of the other services that we use, EMR, um, what else, a few other services. Uh, th those are the primary regions we use. Um, the ones without the stars, those are the ones with the Direct Connect. And we have a couple of collaborations that don't need the Direct Connect, so they, they fire up in the US West 2, primarily because that's where EFS is. A lot of people say, oh, why'd you go, why'd you go AWS? Well, for speed, of course. Um, but however, security and isolation is very, very big for us. You know, we are a pharma company. We have a lot of good stuff. And our on-premise network is not sub, uh, segmented. It's a flat network. Um, so if we have a problem, poof, they're everywhere. Um, but going into Amazon, all these projects are instantly isolated from each other. So in the event of a breach, we can wall off that one little project, poof, you know, it's gone. But everything else is safe. Uh, and of course, elastic nature. Uh, some projects come along, hey, you know, we could use 100 terabytes. You know, I could do 100 terabytes on-premise. Uh, scientists, though, they're not, they're not really thinking down the road always. Uh, so we had a project, 100 terabytes up front, three months later, they're at a petabyte. I'm like, oh, that I can't do on-premise. <clears throat> uh, access for our collaborations. So these are the softwares uh, for our bench chemists. They're collaborations that they do. We don't write code. We don't write software. We, you know, our job is to help find cancer cures. We're not a software company. So most of our bench scientists, we have common software that we purchase, cloud native, that helps us do the collaborations. So what, what access do these vendors need? What access do these developers need? Um, the users come in with a single sign-on, of course, but the, the vendors themselves need additional access. Uh, and we make them tell us exactly what they're looking for in IAM. We don't say, oh, you get star. No, nobody gets star. Um, and you know, it's, it's a little bit of a, a negotiation with these vendors. Uh, they don't, they, it's kind of a give and take. Uh, interestingly, if the smaller the software company, the better they are at finding out or telling you what they need. So some of the small companies, what permissions you need, they already have the document on the website. Here you go. Like, we love you. Um, large consulting companies, eh, not so much. Uh, a couple months ago, large consulting companies said, oh, just give us star. That's not going to happen. Um, bit of disagreement there. The next day, they then sent us a 40-page document. Pretty clear that they just went to Amazon website, copied off the entire permission list, and sent it to me. I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's not going to cut it either. Uh, our HPC environments. So this is... Um, this is where our scientist developers come in. So we give them shell access. 
Um, but a lot of it depends on how they launch their software. Um, some of them have the golden AMI, so that we have to work with them in which to, to launch these. We make sure that the scientists themselves use good AMIs, so we whitelist it. So if, you, if they come to us with an AMI and it's not whitelisted, they can't launch it. Um, so we make sure that they have good software. Um, and the reason why they have golden AMIs is that even though we don't want to be in the business of maintaining software or maintaining images, because like the HLI guys are saying, it's a pain. Every time there's a software image update, you know, new keys, new software, you know, we have to do a fair amount of work to do that. Um, but when you're launching 1,000, 10,000 nodes, the overhead of Chef or another uh, software deployment package, five, 10 minutes, that adds up a lot times 10,000. Um, so these users, they come in via Bastion host, SSH in. We don't give them keys uh, in which to do that. Uh, they, well, they have SSH keys, but they don't have Amazon keys. Uh, th that Bastion host then has an AMI role, IAM role, uh, and they can then access uh, all the other Amazon services from there. Uh, at AWS console, nobody has a direct login to AWS console, not even me. No one, not even, no one in IT, nobody. So we have the Turbot program that allows us. So it's a single sign-on into this platform. We then use that platform to launch into, uh, into the AWS console via SDS token. Uh, the good thing about that is, you know, um, me and my Unix admin here, we have, what, 30 plus accounts in which, that we have to manage. We can't manage 30 different passwords for 30 different consoles, that's crazy. Um, but now we have a single login, and then poof, we're, we're into any one of them. Um, in the event that one of us leaves the company, you can quickly remove that person from that single console, and they're, re they're removed from all the, all the sub-projects. <clears throat> I'm not gonna go into each one of these, um, but these are some of the access rules that we put in place for our buckets. So it's automated, like I said, the projects themselves are allowed to create their own buckets. Turbot comes along, poof, slaps on, the, on this rule. Uh, so in general, we require uh, server-side encryption for everything, as well as uh, uh, encryption in transit. Uh, depending on what the project needs, we may increase that or decrease that. Um, but by default, that's what they get. And then it's a negotiation. You know, if they need less or they need more, they can come talk to us about that. We also use uh, bucket policies and IAM policies to put in place business rules. So we have a number of collaborations, a number of universities, and a lot of universities, they have a little sensitivity about, you know, well, if another university is in there, maybe they can publish first. Like, uh, okay, all right, let's get together, guys. Um, so what we do with, with our buckets is we have a particular bucket that's used for upload only. And anyone, any of the projects can upload there. Our data science team then comes along and manages that data. Each organization has a slightly different data format. So we put them in a common format for the collaboration, and then we, IT, or the data science team, moves that into the final repository. That final repository is not readable from the outside. So, uh, you know, we have a petabyte of data. People are sensitive. We don't want collaborator A stealing from collaborator B. Fine. This bucket is only accessible from within the VPC that we write. Uh, so what do we do with all this data? Uh, we use Enterprise GitHub to manage the code. So we have a number of accounts. We use uh, the GitHub. It's accessible for not only one account, but all the accounts. And if a scientist is traveling and they want to work on their, some code while they're traveling on an airplane, they can do that without getting into uh, our Amazon environment. They just go to GitHub, check out the files, and, and work on it. Uh, data, you know, we are talking a massive quantity of data here that um, you know, our legal team 10 years ago didn't even think about, it was, just wasn't on the radar. Uh, however, you know, we do need, right now, our data retention policies, minimum of three years, 
some data needs to be kept forever. And if you see the bills like I do, that's an enormous amount of money when we're talking petabyte scale data. So we're working with the legal team, uh, the data science team, on what to do with this quantity of data. Uh, currently, right now, we're sending it all to Glacier, uh, life cycle rules, and then um, hopefully over the next 12 months or so, we'll have a long-term solution. Um, for some of our collaborations, we are, you know, with the Cancer Moonshot, we are working to open source the data, so there's some contractual issues there, but long-term, that's what, what, what we want to do here. Um, this is my last slide. So some of the, the lessons that we've learned here, expect failure. Uh, when we're talking tens of thousands of nodes, sometimes on a single day, there's going to be some failures, and we cannot manually fix 10,000 nodes. You have to automate some sort of uh, repair mechanism. Um, ideally, you know, if, have you, anyone here heard pets versus cattle? Um, Google that. Um, we tried to get our scientists to adhere to that concept. If there's a problem with the virtual machine, kill it. Let it restart, let it rebuild itself. Uh, use services as they are intended. Uh, we're still struggling with this a little bit. Um, <clears throat> one of the key things that we're violating here, S3 best practices, because of our users are going directly into the S3 file system with Cyberduck or, or Cloudberry, they need a common folder structure in which to navigate to find their files. Um, so, you know, the first 5, 10, 40 characters of a particular key are the same. And when you launch 1,000, 10,000 nodes to hit that same partition, you're going to over, you're going to tax the S3 file system. Um, there's nothing that we can do about that. We've been yelled at many times by the S3 team, but well, we have end users, you know, what are you going to do? Um, another thing that we do, we're really working with our scientists, is to not use a fuse-based file system to mount S3. We have some software, unfortunately, that cannot read S3. It's looking for a block storage system. So the scientists use S3 CMD to mount a petabyte scale S3 bucket on a Unix file system and it chokes regularly. Um, uh, data transfers, you know, we're talking hundreds of millions of files being sent around. Uh, very, very small percentage failure, but we do have some failures. Uh, it's very, very important to check MD5s. Uh, some of the soft left lessons here that we've learned, um, you know, we, we are, our company's not that old, um, but in the modern, in, in, you know, the company itself, we're about 25, 30 years old. Uh, we have a lot of traditional enterprise folks here, um, and it's a big jump. The cloud is not the same, and it's been challenging for us to work with some of the folks who want to use their past experience, and they, they want to help us out, but it's, it's a challenge, no doubt. Uh, vendors and users, uh, we do work a lot with a lot of small companies. New employees to our company are also coming from startups, and in the past, they're used to putting down the credit card and buying an Amazon account. Well, they have full root, full root access. Well, you come into Celgene, you're not getting star star. Uh, and uh, SSE for users is, it has been very, very interesting. Um, we tell the users every time we give them a set of keys, you have to have server-side encryption. This is how you do it. Okay. They go to upload access denied. Oh, hey, guys, you didn't give me access. Yeah, we did. Um, this is how you do it. Uh, and the last step, last lesson here is to get buy-in from the security team. Now they are they in the very beginning they were it was hard working with them, uh, but now they know my second phone call that I make after getting a project request is the security team, and we're now best friends. We get along great. They trust me. I trust them. And we're here to work for the users, and that's why we're here. Thank you very much. Okay, so. 
Just a quick, you know, AWS summary. So I hope you guys enjoyed, you know, reviewing the architecture and some of the lessons learned from both of these projects. I think they've been just done tremendous work. Uh, both have really, you know, kind of similar advantages, uh, you know, in terms of allowing for rapid infrastructure deployment, isolated work areas, uh, a lot of the stuff that, that Lance referred to and being able to, to really isolate users and different collaborative, collaborative efforts from each other uh, can be, you know, just very valuable and is almost essential in this area. Uh, they've been able to draw, you know, common components into a larger, larger reusable framework, uh, utilize all the elastic resources available to them, and of course, you know, especially in the cases of things like Celgene, um, it's accessible worldwide so that, you know, you can reach and have collaborators anywhere on the planet and still reach a common infrastructure. And hopefully, you know, use all this to drive toward, you know, reliable and reproducible collaborative science that is at a scale that was previously unachievable. And that would be about it. Uh, we thank you for attending this talk. We'll be able to take some questions, not here, but outside. Uh, so if you can catch us uh, in between now and the next session, which begins at 2.20 in this room. Thank you.